Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. Welcome to our podcast interview. We are talking today about the overseas process for refugees. We welcome Helen Morris, who is Senior Policy and Evaluation Officer at the UN High Commission for Refugees. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk to you today. Why don't we start with a little background, uh, generally what your organization does, something about you and your work in the past, and now what you do at your organization. Okay. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees was set up in 1951 um, to protect refugees. It was set up initially with a a three-year mandate to resettle the 1.2 million refugees displaced in Europe after World War II. The mandate was extended every five years, um, but but there was always a hope that there would be no refugees, that the problems would have been resolved. Since 2003, there's been recognition that unfortunately that's not the case, so we're now permanent, and our basic goal is to protect refugees, to ensure that their rights are respected. Um, We also work with stateless persons, with internally displaced persons, who have fled because of conflict. And I can give you some of the latest numbers. Um, at the end of 2012, there were more than 45 million people in situations of displacement. That is more than at any time since 1994, when the, which was the aftermath of the crisis in, in Rwanda. We now have 15 million refugees, that is people who have crossed an international border to seek asylum in another country. Um, Almost a million asylum seekers, um, and I can go into the distinction later, 8 million internally displaced persons, and that's people who have been forced to flee, for example, in, in Syria or in Congo. They didn't cross the border. So they're not refugees, but they have all of the same problems, all of the same issues that refugees have, but there's a legal significance to that difference. So that's our mandate. It's a big one um, with 7,000 staff to take care of um, 45 million people. Um, My background, I am... I was an immigrant to the United States myself. I'm Irish. Then I immigrated to the U.S. I practiced law. I became an immigration lawyer for about 10 years with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. And then I joined the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, and I've worked in in Kosovo, in Pakistan, in Kazakhstan, in a refugee camp in, in Zambia, in Lebanon, in Syria, and in in headquarters in Geneva. Can you explain a little bit further that distinction between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Okay, an asylum seeker is somebody who's crossed an international border and who states that he is a refugee, he or she is a refugee, and seeks that status and that protection. A refugee is someone who's gone through 
a determination procedure by the state or in some cases by UNHCR to see if he fits the definition of a refugee and a refugee is somebody who is outside his or her country of origin and who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion and he or she is unwilling or unable to return to his or her country of origin. Um, so that's the basic difference, someone who's still seeking the status and someone who has been found to have the status. But once a person crosses the border and seeks asylum, he or she has the most basic right, which is non-refoulement, which is the right not to be sent back to his or her country of origin. I mentioned earlier that there were 15.4 million refugees. And as you can imagine, doing refugee status determination for all of those people would be very burdensome in any state. So in many situations, people are prima facie refugees, which means that, for example, um, Syrians fleeing to Jordan or Lebanon or Somalis fleeing to Kenya are designated to be refugees just because they have that nationality, Somali, Syria, and they don't have to go through an individual procedure to determine if they have a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, and if someone does not have that prima facie determination, what is the process for becoming a refugee? It depends. People who seek asylum in the United States who arrive um, in the United States by, by plane or by sea have to file an asylum claim and be interviewed by an asylum officer and I hope and go through that whole process including appeals. Um, most countries have, if there's not a prima facie status, have some version of that. It's a state function to undertake this determination, although in many developing countries, the states are unwilling or unable to undertake this function. So UNHCR undertakes the function of having an individual interview with the person and his or her family to determine if they really have a well-founded fear and if it's because of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. Um, and it's important to note there's also that um, the exclusion clause, which means that someone who has committed a serious non-political crime cannot be afforded the, the status of refugee. All right, so let's look at the process a bit. If someone has fled his or her country and arrives at a camp, how is that set up and when does the, where does this interview fit into the process? What are the services that the UNHCR provides? Most of the world's refugees are actually in developing countries. They're, there's a perception, I think, in Europe, in U.S., in the Canada, that all of the refugees are coming uh, to those countries. But in fact, the, the biggest refugee hosting countries in terms of numbers are Pakistan, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Kenya, Chad, 
Um, so in those countries, they don't have sophisticated asylum systems like the United States. Um, normally, it's a, to, if there's a process of registration, people are given a card. Each person is, in, is registered individually, and then they are given space. It's also important to note that not on, when you think about refugees, certainly all of the images in the media talk about camps, and you see these rows and rows of tents, but there are many, many urban refugees, so these are people who have fled and are basically living normally in the poorer parts of, the, of, of cities. The Iraq, for example, with the Iraqi outflow in 2007-8, we didn't have camps. We had one and a half million Iraqi refugees in the region at one point, most of them in Syria, and they were not living in camps. They were basically living in neighborhoods in Damascus and in Amman and in, in Beirut. We have established camps for the Syrians in, in Jordan and Lebanon. But no, whether they're urban or uh, camp-based refugees, they still go through a process of registration because, of course, we want to know who they are and the host government also wants to know, know who they are. And at a certain point, there will be a refugee status determination if they're not prima facie refugees. Now, we know in the U.S., those of us who work with asylum seekers recognize the challenges of you know, documenting a claim or presenting evidence or even having proof of identity. What are some of the challenges that are particular to refugees in these uh, cities? Um, the same. There's some of the same challenges. They don't have documents, so it's difficult to, to prove who they are. And it becomes a question when we're talking about refugee status determination of if I'm if I'm a refugee, it becomes a question of whether and you're adjudicating whether you believe me or not. That is basically what it comes down to. Um, of course, we have other huge challenges in assisting people, in, especially if they're in remote contexts like Dadaab, Kenya, which is home to more than half a million Somali refugees. It's, it's remote. It's more than two days' drive from Nairobi. So it's a challenge to get relief items there, even though that camp has been in existence for, for 20 years, to make sure that there's enough food for food distribution. Um, there are always ongoing problems, like one of the biggest is uh, sexual and gender-based violence. And if people are living in these camps that you've seen on, on TV, of course they don't have the right to freedom of movement, they, they can't work, so it's difficult for them to support themselves. What are some of the other options for a refugee? Are, are there scenarios in which the UNHCR or even the hosting government waits to see if the situation changes in the home country? No. We talk about having three durable solutions for refugees. One is voluntary repatriation. This is when the home country becomes safe and uh, people feel that it's secure and they're ready to go back. 
Um, an example would be, from a while ago, would be Angola. When the civil war ended there, there was a very large-scale repatriation of Angolans from neighboring countries, from Zambia and Namibia. I think of that because I worked in, in Zambia, but it's happening in, in many, many contexts. The second solution is local integration, which is basically when the host state accepts that the people are going to remain on the territory long term. Um, this one is, presents its challenges because many host states don't want to accept that they're going to remain long term. Um, but it is one that we work very hard on, and it involves a lot of negotiation with the with the host states. And then the third durable solution is resettlement, which is probably the one that your listeners are most familiar with. And it's certainly a fantastic solution for people to have an opportunity to start a new life. But when you remember the numbers, 15.4 million refugees, and you think about the number of resettlement places available globally every year, which is about 100,000, uh, you realize that even less than 1% of refugees will have the opportunity to be resettled. At the moment, we have 28 resettlement countries. In U.S., Canada, and Australia are the largest. There are European countries, Sweden, um, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France. There are also Latin American countries, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. So there are many countries. But in reality, I have to praise the United States um, because the U.S. accepts uh, the, by far the largest proportion of refugees that are referred by UNHCR for resettlement every year, normally 75 to 80%. Oh, well, that's good to know. And I imagine that the the wait time is lengthy for folks with such large numbers waiting for such limited uh, slots. Yes, yes. You, you actually asked before if there was a policy of waiting to see if things would get better. Not really. Um, I mean, there's, there's no policy of, of seeing whether Iraq was going to get better before we started resettling Iraqi refugees. But the process is very time-consuming. There are several interviews with the UNHCR, followed by interviews with the resettlement country, whether it's the U.S., Sweden, or Norway, followed by health checks, followed by security checks. So the process can be very long. It can be up to two years. Um, it can be very quick. We have some emergency resettlement, uh, but in reality, that works much better with some of the European countries, with Norway and Sweden, for example, than it does with, with the U.S. And the, a big delay is security checks, and uh, of course, we understand that if people are going to be accepted as permanent residents and then ultimately as citizens that each country wants to know that they're going to be good citizens. So, uh, of course, this is the necessary step, and we're working closely with, with the resettlement countries to see if this necessary step can take place relatively quickly. But it's, it's a huge challenge. 
And in your experience, is the interview with the asylum seeker similar to an interview with an asylum officer, or is it more like talking to your own prospective lawyer who's trying to determine you know, whether you have a decent case and whether you qualify? I mean, we advocate, of course, for the protection of refugees, for their right to stay in the country of asylum. But, I mean, we also work closely with the resettlement countries, and while the basis for resettlement should be the need for protection, um, each country has slightly different rules, and uh, we, we do go through a refugee status determination kind of interview. I would say normally it takes a couple of hours, um, and then there's there's a lot of paperwork to be filled out by UNHCR, then sent to the U.S., um, the embassy normally in the country of, of asylum. And then the U.S. has a core of um, refugee officers who are like asylum officers, except that I think they spend most of their time going abroad to interview refugees in camps or in urban settings. And then there's all of the, the security and health checks. It's quite, it's quite a long and complicated process. And what happens to the people who are determined to, to not meet the definition of refugee? By UNHCR or by the U.S.? Because the U.S. makes its own determination again after UNHCR refers them. So for UNHCR, they're still refugees. And if, for example, the U.S. doesn't agree that they're refugees, we might try to resettle them to another country, or we might just decide that they they have little option but to stay in the country of asylum. But if the UNHCR interview determines that the reason the person left is not for one of the protected grounds, what happens? It depends. If it's a prima facie situation, then they're probably still a prima facie refugee. If um, if not, then we're working in cooperation with, with the government. If the person is not a refugee, he no longer has the right to non-refoulement because according to the determination, he doesn't have a well-founded fear of persecution, so the country of asylum has the right to return him or her, either by deportation or by voluntary return. Well, how can people find out more about the work at the UNHCR? I invite you to visit our website, which is unhcr.org. Um, June 20th is World Refugee Day, and I encourage you to, if there are activities going on in your community, to, to think about participating, to demonstrate solidarity with refugees, and our our campaign is one person forced to flee is too many. There are a couple of campaigns at the moment, which you will see on our website. One is the most important thing to 
if you were forced to flee, if you just had to leave your house, your home, your community, you had two, five minutes, what is the one thing that you would take? They, we had a photographer do this campaign in, with Syrian refugees and was very moving and then it expanded to other refugees and we're giving the public an opportunity to think about that and upload, I think, through our website. So I encourage you to visit our website and I encourage you to take part in whatever activities are there in your communities to meet some refugees because the U.S. has such a generous program and there are refugees in every community and um, to show solidarity. Well, thank you, Helen. I know in our work we don't often meet the refugees until they've been here for a while and are ready to adjust status to permanent residency. Mm-hmm. That's it for today. I'd like to thank Helen Morris, Senior Policy and Evaluation Officer at the UN High Commission for Refugees, for your time, Helen, and for your expertise. You're welcome. Thanks a lot.